0: from PRX
1: Stu
2: Stu D D
1: F
0: F e. Studio That's it right Studio 360 60 with Kurt Anderson Kurt Anderson Kurt Anderson I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car so
2: Don't be sniffy about I'm not pens. being sniffy I think I you mean, are. No no you have got a
3: nose for it Oh gosh wow.
1: What are you saying
3: over there Today on the show It is, for me, honestly, the way that I see the world.
1: There's a lot of work that goes behind that magic. One of the mistakes
4: people make is they're not willing to get down on the dog's level.
1: Keep
2: listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. I like pets. I think I'm on my sixth cat, not including all the ones I grew up with. And while I don't own a dog, I do like dog watching every now and then. (laughs) In New York City, one of the great places to do that is the dog run in Washington Square Park in Greenwich Village. It's big and has an amazing variety of creatures, by which I mean the dogs and the people walking them. Lately, one of the human habitués of Washington Square Dog Park has been a new dog world celebrity.
4: Hi, are you Elias? Hey, how's it going?
2: I went there early one chilly morning to find him. You've got a camera and, and uh, you look like you're 28, so you must be Elias. <laughs> Good to meet you, i am hurt. Likewise. Elias Weiss-Friedman is the New York City-based photographer behind the blog The Doggest, which is an online phenomenon with 2.4 million followers on Instagram. I asked Elias to tell me about this one-of-a-kind gig and for some advice on taking doggist-quality photographs of one's own dogs. Most people
4: think I'm joking at first. And they say, no, 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 really, what do you do? Really? And I say, this is actually what I do. I realized, like, wait, no one's really doing this. No one's taking portraits of dogs and sharing with the world, kind of like Humans of New York or the Sartorialist for dogs. Right,
2: right, right. Um,
4: really? I, I knew from day one that if I was consistent with it, that people love it and i'm i'm sitting here 3 years later having photographed 15,000 dogs.
2: That's incredible. <laughs>
4: it, i think that's, it must that's be a some work world, ethic, dude. must be some world record.
2: Yeah. And so for people who haven't looked at Dogst yet, um what information do you provide about the dogs and or their owners in
4: your uh, posts? It's their name, breed, age, location and something interesting about the dog, something some story about them.
2: Is morning better, afternoon, evening better, or is it uh, better? It,
4: the, it's all around their um, poop and pee schedule. Of course. So uh, mornings, midday, and after work. And it, in New York, uh, I like to shoot on the weekends because the owners are more likely to be with them instead of at work.
2: I mean, there aren't a lot of cats walking around, but there are some. And, and in New York, you get all kinds of... I mean, you get ferrets, you get... And Lots every, of pets. You got everything, yeah. Do you shoot them? Do you photograph them or just stick to dogs? I photograph cats.
4: I also run the Catist, which is really? a, a little known thing. Oh, I'll,
2: I'll check out as a cat it's, person. It's I'll check out the cat. It's basically the
4: same premise as the Dogist, but cats. And uh, you know, cats don't walk around in the same way dogs I know. do, I know. and they're also harder to photograph. I have found because they're more—they're not as they're generous. They're more cat-like. They're more cat-like. <laughs> they're not as generous with eye
2: contact. Yeah, right.
4: But so I what, still one what,
2: what, uh, what of the reasons that. Cat people like cats because they're not quite so needy. Right. They're, they're different. Uh, yeah. yeah. Different, I meant. Yeah. Yes. Um, you look like a normal person. You don't look Thank so you. weirdly Thank dressed. You. But let's go through uh, wh- how you're equipped from toe to Okay. To well,
4: I'm wearing uh, working sort of cargo pants that I've destroyed about 15 pairs of. But underneath I have knee pads. And I wear them underneath because I don't like to give away that i'm a yeah yeah yeah
2: yeah
4: just yeah. a little bit more um under the radar boots squeaky toy uh, dog treats
2: and the, obviously a camera
4: yeah um you know this is all sort of slobber proof the back i have lens wipes for dog slobber i have a pen and i have
2: sunglasses so everybody who has a dog has taken pictures of their dog uh now that you're the you know, world professional at this, <laughs> what, what mistakes do they make? One
4: of the mistakes people make is, is they're not willing to get down on the dog's level. You get all these pictures from the iPhone level of the dog's top of the dog's head, and that's, it's still a picture of your dog, but the way that is more impactful and compelling is on their level where it feels like they're bigger. Uh, I'm also tall, so it's easier for me to photograph bigger dogs. No. because I don't have to get all the way down and, and uh, yeah. crease my neck a little You're bit. Tall. You are
2: Vin, tall. Vince Vaughn could play the older you exactly. in, the, in, the, in the, <laughs> the biopic. I like that. Good. <laughs> um, it's like uh, you know going, or, or whistling, or, or making dog noises. Yeah,
4: is that of, part of it? Yeah, one of my noises is a weird noise that makes people's heads turn. Uh, a lot of noises. Uh, That's a good start.
2: I asked some public radio colleagues if they'd volunteer to bring their dog for a photo shoot with the doggest, and Delaney Simmons brought along her pup. Who, he's, he's, he's about as cute as a dog can be. Oh, yes.
5: <laughs> this is Thatch.
2: <laughs> so Delaney works at WNYC. Elias Delaney.
4: Hi. And he's a, what breed is he, you say?
5: You know, he's a rescue, so we're not 100% sure he's you a little some crazy. terrier. Yeah, terrier. <laughs> um, terrier mix, probably like a little Brussels Griffin. Nice. Yeah. And,
2: and and almost, not black, dark brown, I guess we call him. He's small. He's His, his fur is a little, uh, not ragged. What do you call that? Shaggy. Uh, scruffy? scruffy? Scruffy. Scruffy is perfect. Right, exactly. Uh, is he a good dog? He can be. I guess you're saying he's not.
5: Um, he's he can be. He's very answer. sweet. Um, is he but a good he, boy? Um, he, yeah, he'll sit for you if you have a treat.
4: Oh, he is a good boy. Would you look at that? He did sit. I guess you must have taken pictures of him.
5: Oh my gosh, I have, you know, it's so funny because he's basically all black that it's really hard to get a good iPhone photo.
4: With uh, black dogs, you need to have some camera settings that aren't available on the iPhone.
5: Got it. Basically. You
4: a real camera? A real camera, uh-huh. exactly.
2: <laughs> so meaning what? So what, So if you have a, a real camera and you've got a black dog, what do you do to, to make... Well, the camera, the camera thinks that
4: there's not enough light because it's black uh-huh. dog, so it, it opens up the shutter and it overexposes the dog. So you have to say to say to the camera. Actually, no, we're basically underexposed.
2: Can you show me how to? Uh, uh, we'll use thatch, and and you'll show me how to try to take. Let's do it. Picture. Okay. Okay.
4: okay. So, so th- here we've got thatch. So if we create thatch over here, a little space behind him. So we we got out of the sun.
2: So now we're in just a flat yes. flat light flat, situation. Right.
4: Right. Uh, so the first thing I like to do is establish trust between uh, myself and the dog. Let the dog smell you. You know, that's the way dogs sort of figure out who you are. Uh, Get down on the dog's level.
2: Elias crouched down on his knees and leaned forward so that his camera lens was positioned right in front of this dog's face.
4: Have something they want, whether it's a toy or a treat. You know, you have to capture their attention. Thatch! So he likes treats. I've already discerned that. Take that thing and move it around the lens because that's where you want them to look. If you get the lead just like that, yeah. Learn different noises, learn how to bark.
2: The tennis ball is working?
4: It's the treat that's working right now.
2: Oh, you gave him a treat, or there's a treat? There's a ready. treat in my hand. see? ha! Uh-huh, he knows sit. That you got the, the treat.
4: nose knows. It's really that quick, because I got him to sit. He looked right at me. <laughs> Oh, Excellent. yes. And um, reward the dog for sitting for you. Oh, that's good. That's good. And, that oh, it's delicious. <laughs> yes. So
2: the, the, the hidden treat, the tennis ball, and the little... That yes, squirrels.
4: dogs are pretty dogmatic, <laughs> yes, believe it or not. I
2: mean. <laughs> Next, graphic designer Sahar Baharlu brought her 10-year-old chihuahua, Frankie, to be famous for his 15 seconds.
1: He has a little less energy than Thatch did. He's,
2: he's, a, little, he's a little shaky.
1: He's a chihuahua. He's oh. a little cold. <laughs> oh, i, never, shakes, been, I yeah.
2: never been this close to a chihuahua.
0: He, uh, he shakes whenever he feels any sort of emotion. Emotion? Yeah. Really?
2: he So it's not necessarily bad?
0: Not necessarily bad.
2: He's got a funny expression the way his he, eyes are sort of half open.
1: Yeah, he, kind of SpongeBob SquarePantsy. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs>
2: exactly. Um, so... What do we do? So all, right. all I've got here is an iPhone, which so, I think most people will have. So
4: we're well. If you feel like getting on the ground, then go for it. Uh, okay. Why not? <laughs> he is a small dog, so this should is a, hide a, the a first challenge. Or, or, or uh, I would run it by his nose quickly. Mm. And now, now is when you should be taking a picture. Okay. And <laughs> look at me, dog. What's it, What's her name?
2: Frankie. Frankie. Look at me, Frankie. There you go. Oh. Yeah. That's and so you try squeaky.
4: Bomb. You could try squeaking this okay.
2: above your lens. Here, Frankie. Look, Frankie. Frankie. Frankie! (laughs) Look at me. Mmm. Unfortunately, Frankie was not excited by the treat or the toy. He mostly just hopped and scurried. Yeah, that's about the best we're going to do with Frankie. Yeah. Not not bad. Uh, Well, thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Elias. Likewise. This is great. Cheers. Thank you. Good talking to you. To see more of Elias's work and photos of Thatch, head over to Studio360.org. You can follow The Doggest on Instagram and other social media. And there's also The Doggest book with pictures of a thousand of the many thousands that he has shot. And if you use The Doggest tips to take portraits of your dog, post them on Instagram and tag us at Studio360Show. We'll repost our favorites. Carter Burwell is the world class composer who scored films such as Fargo. So we got a trooper pull someone over. We got a shooting. These folks drive by. There's a high speed pursuit. Ends here and then this execution type deal. Being John Malkovich. That portal is mine and it must be sealed forever for the love of God. And Twilight. I
4: like watching you sleep. It's just um, kind of fascinating to me.
2: And this is how he gets his creative juices flowing.
3: Typically, I sit at, my, at a piano. I, I live um, in Amagansett at the end of Long Island, and I'm happy to say I have a piano that just faces the ocean. I just sit at the piano and just face the ocean. I don't look at the film. And I just think, you could do this, I could try that, or I'll do little exercises for myself on the piano with my left and right hands playing different keys or whatever. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. Maybe I read the piano, read the newspaper while I'm playing the piano. So um, that's usually where I begin. I begin at the piano, and uh, once I have things that I think are promising, I develop them, develop them, and then I'll take them. You know, This is usually a weaker so into the process, take them and put them against the picture and, and confirm that, okay, I think this is going to work. And then it will start to uh, orchestrate it, start to say, well, I think that that melody would be best on a woodwind or it would be best on a guitar or whatever. Uh, and uh, from there, uh, I start sending ideas to the director, these um, sketches where I use computers to simulate those sounds, sound of the oboe, sound of the guitar, and until then, the, you know, the director's been, you know, <laughs> politely waiting uh, to hear what, what I've come up with. And, uh, but at that point, we really have something real to discuss.
2: Lots more from Carter Burwell later this hour. Also, Barbie once had a friend in a wheelchair, but she didn't last.
0: It was too complicated to redesign Barbie well to fit Becky, so they just got rid of her.
2: The Unfortunate Tale of a Doll with a Disability. That's still ahead in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Studio
5: 360
0: Barbie, you're beautiful You make me feel My Barbie doll
2: Little girls have adored Barbies since I was was a little boy. Not so much my two daughters. They once had me drive over their dolls and wanted to create a Barbie cemetery. I guess they were very young feminists. But for fans of the doll, there was some good news last year.
5: Many would say it's about time. Barbie's getting a makeover.
2: Mattel announced that it was making over its Barbie doll line to look more like human women
5: look. After criticism that the doll creates unrealistic body expectations, Mattel is introducing new body shapes as well as different skin tones and other features. But
2: this is not the first time Mattel tried making Barbie more inclusive. In the 90s, as we'd all become more aware of the unnecessary obstacles faced by disabled people, they unveiled a new doll, a Barbie pal, Share-A-Smile Becky, who used a wheelchair. It was a well-intentioned effort that didn't go exactly as planned. Rene Gross has the story, which begins with a publicity event 20 years ago.
0: Well, Barbie's reason for being is that she allows little girls to play out their
1: dreams and aspirations of what it's like to be grown up in the world, and Barbie has had many um, ethnic friends over the years. It was about time that Barbie had a friend with a disability.
0: Dolls are usually unveiled at toy trade shows, but Mattel decided to introduce Becky in Washington because it seemed like a great PR opportunity was the smile on Mallory Rosado's face and the remark from Hannah Withers that this is a doll that makes her feel special. Two little girls in wheelchairs assuring two big toy companies they had done a good thing. The company decided that it would announce at the press event that it was donating $20,000 to disability charities and it even arranged for some prominent wheelchair users and disability advocates to attend.
5: Becky is going to smash attitudinal barriers
0: Justin Dart Jr. was co-founder of the American Association of People with Disabilities, and a lot of people called him the godfather of the ADA.
5: Becky is going to help millions of people with disabilities to move from dependency to the American dream.
0: For dramatic purposes, a big piece of fabric was draped to conceal the doll. Until... And here she is. Shara Smile Becky has a beautiful, realistic-styled wheelchair with iridescent mylar along the wheels. She also has... Her very own backpack that fits onto the actual wheelchair. Becky was an instant hit for Mattel. Mattel
5: says she's already its best-selling exclusive doll with nearly 6,000 sold in the last few weeks.
3: I think there's a heck of a lot of money to be made from this because we're talking about a market of 50 million Americans spending about $700 billion a year.
5: The question now is, can the original Barbie handle the competition?
0: Actually, there was a much bigger question.
4: Last month, Mattel introduced the first disabled doll in the Barbie family. But now we learn that Becky's wheelchair doesn't fit through the doors of Barbie's house.
0: That's right. The wheelchair could not fit into... The Barbie dream house. And it wasn't only the front door that was inaccessible.
5: Let's take the elevator. (laughs) It really works. Even the one elevator is too small. Mattel says future designs will keep Becky and her wheelchair in mind. For the first year, Becky will be sold exclusively at Toys R Us. Mattel says she's already its best-selling exclusive... So if uh, Becky and Barbie were maybe making some lunch, there is absolutely no way that Becky could reach most of the things in this kitchen.
0: That's Monique Kulik. She's an accessibility advocate based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I brought her a share-smile Becky and a new Barbie Dream house.
5: A lot of times with people who use wheelchairs, they will um, access things in the kitchen from the side. So very awkward if this were Becky's house. Her kitchen would have a clear space under the sink so she could roll directly up to it. Dishwashers are normally... For an accessible kitchen and universal, they're raised so that that bottom rack, you don't have to bend down so far for the bottom rack.
0: Mattel said in the mid-90s that future Barbie houses would be more accessible. But for this Barbie dream house that's on the toy shelves now, Becky's wheelchair still couldn't fit in the elevator.
5: There's absolutely no way. It won't even fit with her legs sticking out. So pretty much um, in this house, Becky could go to the kitchen.
0: So Mattel never changed the house, but what did change was Becky she became Becky I'm the school photographer then I love you sign language Becky and then Paralympic Becky until finally they stopped making the doll altogether a lot of the the talk about why Becky doesn't exist anymore in any iteration is that it was too complicated to redesign Barbie world to fit Becky so we so they just got rid of her. Karen Hetzelberger has cerebral palsy and uses a wheelchair. She got a share smile Becky, when she was seven.: I think it speaks volumes to the way we think about disability. A lot of the ways we think about disabilities is we talk about fixing disability instead of focusing on fixing society.: Some accounts claim that before Mattel discontinued the doll, they contemplated making her wheelchair smaller, so she could fit through the doors of Barbie's house. This way, they wouldn't have to change the house.
5: What's oh, my that God, thing? that's a, hu- a huge thing. Huge thing, fix the person. Wait, really? Oh, absolutely. What? Why can't you just reach for that hot thing over the side? You know, just, you know, go to the gym and, and build up some muscles so that you can do that. What's, what is wrong with having to go to the back of the building by the dumpsters in order to find a ramp to get into the building?
0: This idea of fixing people with disabilities instead of their environment? Maybe the Becky doll is educational for kids, but in the opposite way it was intended.
2: Turns out this was not Mattel's only Barbie debacle. Around that time when they were wheeling out Becky, the company teamed up with the makers of Oreo cookies to make a Barbie who had a purse shaped like an Oreo. That was so popular that Mattel decided to make an African-American version. This is true. Oreo Fun Barbie. You'd think at that point everybody would know better than to associate the white on the inside cookie with African-Americans in a branding. When the doll met with outrage, Mattel didn't just discontinue the black version of Oreo Fun Barbie. They recalled it as if it could cause physical harm. The most famous operas, the ones from the 1800s, are in French or Italian or German, but most opera-goers in America can barely order a cup of coffee in those languages. So for a generation, some opera houses, like New York's Metropolitan, have subtitled operas discreetly and electronically, like with screens on the back of each seat. But when a line of translation appears on screen too late or too soon, that can be confusing and distracting. So, for our latest installment in our new day job series, we meet somebody who has the job of getting that timing exactly right.
5: Go. Go.
1: My name is Lily Arbisser. I'm a soprano based in New York City, and I run titles for the Metropolitan Opera. Go. At the Met, we have these sort of very innocuous and, I think, quite elegant screens that we've put into the back of every chair that project the titles in LED lights in a red color. We put up the titles based on the musical measures. So if it takes a singer 10 seconds, let's say six measures to sing a line, I will say go right before the title goes up. Yeah and then I'll wait, I'll follow the music in the score until the next title appears. Again, I'll say, go, and then that title goes up on the screen for, for the viewer to read. Go. Yeah. I spend many hours at the opera, sometimes eight hours a day, running these titles, meaning that I say, go anywhere between 600, 1,500 times a night. When I get to the Met Opera, I'll walk through the stage door, I will make some lefts, some rights through a sort of labyrinthine space. And we walk down a beautifully red carpeted floor past the usher's office. And then we take a left through a sort of secret-ish door into a tunnel that could lead us to the garage. But instead, we go through another big heavy door. And we've arrived at the filing cabinet slash titles booth. It's a small box of a space. There isn't a lot of air in there. Welcome. Looks sort of like the cockpit of a plane. There are lots of lights and buttons. And the feed is the lighting calls, basically. At the Met, we have two people in the booth. It's me, the cue caller, and then on my right side is the titles operator. Buck, the operator, likes to listen to the lighting calls. My name is Buck
0: Fleck. I'm an electrician at the Metropolitan Opera and uh, work in the titles department. And Who's
1: actually advancing the titles on, on the computer. You might be able to hear the orchestra warm up a little bit if they're out there. some people know. My score is set up, so I'll have a score with the numbers in it. And each one of those numbers refers to the titles that will be on my right side. There's a computer screen on my right that shows me which titles have come, which ones are coming so that I can double check to make sure that I'm on with exactly the number that I see on the computer that's also in my score. And then I also have two cameras that show me an image of the conductors. And then I also have a much larger TV screen, which will show me a miniaturized version of the stage. And that's the one I'll, from time to time, especially on dangerous entrances, dangerous in the sense Go. that I don't really know when the singer's going to say, Dio, you know, oh God. Go. So that's when I have to kind of take my eyes out of the score, look up at the set, and try to determine by watching their jaw or their back or their neck or anything, when they're going to make that choice to Go. take the breath so that I can lead with the title bravely, hoping that they come in exactly when I anticipated them doing so. Go. Go. That's a way in which actually being an opera singer is extremely important. You need to really be ahead of where the music's at in order to anticipate these titles and when they should come up so that they seem like they come with the first utterance Go. of the singer. Go. 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 Because I have a sense of when I would breathe for a phrase, and it usually corresponds pretty, pretty well with the singer's choice as well. For example... One day in my life, I hope that I'll get to sing Desdemona or Desdemona in Otello. It's a Verdi opera. And she has this line when she first enters. She says, Mio Superbo superbo Guerriere. My amazing warrior. If I were about to watch that, I would watch her and and he would finish his line. (laughs) She would go superb So right before, mio, I would go, go, and then the guys who are who are advancing the cues would trust that I knew when the was going to start. They would hit their button. The title would come up, and like magic to my eyes, I would see my superb warrior would pop up on these little tiny LED lights, at the exact moment that she goes, "Mm -hmm," -hmm," so then you see it right away. The text comes up immediately, as if it was automated. In fact, people often think that Matt titles are automated because our job is to make them so rhythmically accurate that it almost seems like it couldn't be anything other than automated because it always comes in right when you would expect to see to see the text. There's a lot of work that goes behind that magic. Go. The thing that's so amazing about going to see an opera or any sort of live performance is that it is live, which means... Nothing runs exactly as expected. No tempo that the conductor chooses is ever going to be spot exactly on as it was the night before or the week before. And a singer may take a little extra time to breathe on a night, or may make their cadenza move at a different pace than they did the night before, which is what they should do because they're. They're invested emotionally in what they're doing and that allows for time differentials so we can't automate it because you can't have a plan that a title is going to come up at 36 minutes and 11 seconds that says pamina i love you and they're still back on the part where they're in the fight <laughs> yeah. i like anyone else had gone to the met and seen the titles and hadn't really given them a second thought, hadn't thought that there was a person sitting in a cabinet somewhere who was making sure that I could understand the words of the opera. No. The cue caller position is what I do to pay the bills, but also it's sort of an institutionalized learning opportunity for me. I am still what you would consider, like, a fledgling in, in this career, both but also just age-wise. I just turned 30, and my voice is just starting to come into its most beautiful and mature qualities. I have been studying voice for 14 or 15 years, but I've really only started to understand my instrument maybe in the last three years. And it's only now that I'm starting to get opportunities and really start to build my career. This world of titling really changed the way that I look at the opera. It allowed me to go into one of the greatest opera houses in the world and demystify it, but also in some ways absorbing the music of the operas that I'm working on myself or dreaming of singing one day.
2: Is Lily Arbisser singing a piece from the opera Louise? She's now rehearsing to perform in the magic flute for Opera Seabrook in New Jersey this May. So that's
1: how my show goes. Have a good weekend. You
5: too. I'll see you on Monday. Monday,
2: yeah. Maybe you've got an interesting day job that lets you pursue your true creative passion or you know a painter, for instance, who earns his living as a professional mourner, or a novelist who covers her nut by being a lighthouse keeper? If so, tell us all about it in a voice memo or email and send it to studio360 at WNYC.org. And we may be in touch. All this month, we at Studio 360 are asking you to spread the word about podcasts, especially to those flip phone users who haven't quite figured out how to download podcasts yet. So tell the world about your favorite on social media and use the hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y-P-O-D. T-R-Y-P-O-D, tripod. Thanks. Up next...
3: Temp music Spotting Spotting. Source music Streamers and punches Mickey Mousing
2: The A-list film composer Carter Burwell explains the lingo of his trade. That's ahead in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC.
1: Studio 360.
2: Whenever I talk to any kind of artist or maker, I love learning all the nitty-gritty of their work, including the special jargon they use, which is why we are launching a new Studio 360 series called Terms of Art where I'll talk with all sorts of artists and impresarios about the phrases peculiar to their creative field. First up, how to talk like a film composer with Carter Burwell. Carter was playing in punk rock bands in the early 80s when a friend asked if he wanted to take a stab at writing the music for a super low-budget movie. It was being made by a couple of Fellow young nobodies in New York named Joel and Ethan Cohen, and it was called Blood Simple. Turns out Carter had a knack for scoring films, and he has since done the music for most of the Cohen brothers. He's also worked with Todd Haynes, Charlie Kaufman, and Spike Jones, among many other directors. So I asked him to come in and walk me through the soundtrack lingo. First thing I asked,
3: what is temp music? It sends shivers up my spine when you say it. Uh, it's, yeah, it is a it's the bane of my existence, and, and I, I'll explain what it is. When a director and an editor are editing the film, it's not uncommon for the editor to want to put some music in there, just so that when they show the scene to the director, it's, you're feeling yeah. something. Something's happening. So it is done all the time. Uh, virtually every film you've seen has had right. temp music put into it. You, as the audience member, probably don't know what it was although if you actually thought hard about it maybe you would know because the next step is they they bring in a composer and play the movie for him with that temp music right. in there They've been living with that temp music for a couple of months. Right. And they suddenly be- it's the music. It's the music. It's like writing a novel and saying, and this character is going to be played by Jack Nicholson,
2: this one by Ryan Gosling. So do go crazy with whatever you want to make them like, right? <laughs> yes,
3: <laughs> exactly.
2: Um, and when you're watching a film uh, that you had nothing to do with, can you say, oh, I see how this went? Can yeah, you well,
3: reverse engineer as you're watching yeah, unfortunately, you can. And I think that if now that now that the listeners know about temp music, you go back and listen to a lot of film scores, you might begin to say, oh, I can imagine what they put in here for temp. I can imagine what they put in here for temp. And I, you know, it does result in lawsuits. I know Danny Elfman told me once that one year Vanity Fair is doing their, their Oscar issue where they put all the composers together. They do a, a layout for each craft. And The composers would not all agree to be in the room at the same time because they'd all suit each other. Every one of them had sued someone else in the room. And
2: and again, Danny Elfman, great big composer of television and film uh, scores. Um, Do do directors ever – as they must, I guess – like, oh, the temp was so perfect. Do they ever say like, and it is perfect and that's what
3: I'm going to use. Sorry. (laughs) Well, I like it when they do that actually. I I prefer – If you're going to try to make me sound like something else because you think that the other thing is perfect, you should just go ahead and license that other thing. So 2001, A Space Odyssey is a famous example. And the opening
2: notes of the film, which people now know as 2001 theme, I guess, of course, (laughs) is, is a piece by Richard Strauss from 70 years earlier. of the most awesome cinematic musical experiences of my young life in 1968. So I, I never knew uh,
3: that there was a score, right? There was a score. That's right. Alex North had been hired uh, as a composer. I think he had done Spartacus. and For um, Kubrick. For Kubrick. And uh, these classical pieces had been put in as temp music. You know, a, l- a little bit frightening probably to face as a composer. But Alex North did face it and he went ahead and he wrote a score. And he's a great composer. Right. As I understand it, somehow it skipped Kubrick's mind to tell him that they had never actually put the score in and had went that they had in, in the end just gone with the temp music. And it wasn't until Alex North saw the film.
2: Oh,
4: well,
3: here's, here is the opening of his score uh, for that same scene uh, in 2001
2: A Space Odyssey. Which hearing that I, I'm thinking, whoa, ten years later, John Williams, Star Wars. Yeah, no, that's right. So the next term of art we want to talk about is spotting. What is spotting?
3: So spotting is the first sort of official step in a composer working on a film. It's where the composer sits with the director, usually the film editor too, and we go through the film, stop and start from the beginning, saying, okay, there should be music here. It starts here, it ends there. And that's our first chance to say, what is the intention of the music? What what am I going to bring to this film?
2: Do the directors say, oh, like, a little bit of this Schoenberg here or a little bit of, you know, Prince here. Is that how the conversation goes?
3: There are definitely directors uh, who are capable of doing that, maybe who do that. Yeah. But I have to say, if I sense that a director knows what they want, that makes the whole project less interesting to me. And right. I, I, you know, I don't really want to right. do that. I don't want to do a project where the director says, okay, we, you can see what this is. Let's just do it.
2: Do you, all things being equal, would you rather have a director who is musically knowledgeable or, like, just
3: not? Well— I have dealt with directors who. Well, I'll say Michael Mann. He's known for you know being the guy who tells you how the how the buttons should be stitched on the costumes. And I I went through a film with him once, and he's and he literally said to me, "We're watching a scene." He says, "I think strings a minor, D minor." <laughs> wow! But we didn't. I knew that if he's doing that then at the spotting session, we were not going to be able to survive each other. It was not going to be yeah. a pretty picture.
2: The next uh, term, I suppose, would come up, might come up when you're spotting. Is that, is that how we say it? You're that's spotting right. with the director? We're spotting. Uh, is ironic scoring, which is a phrase I'd never heard of and I love uh, that idea that that's a term. So a uh, director asks you to score a scene ironically?
3: Is that how it happens? It is a thing that can come up at the spotting. Uh, take any, any film. Take uh, Being John Malkovich. Uh, the Spike Jones movie that you also composed. Which I also composed. We began to gravitate towards the idea that, well, the, the most disturbing thing, the most uncomfortable thing for the audience would be if we took the story seriously and you actually believed it was possible to go into someone else's brain.
0: But Dr. Lester...
3: I am not Dr. Lester. I am Captain Merton. Take these characters that could be kind of cartoony and make them real.
0: I don't understand. It was 90 years ago that I discovered a strange portal... And I found that this portal led to a vessel body and that I could live forever by leaping from vessel to vessel.
3: You could feel the emotions that were right. involved, and that would be the most uncomfortable and disturbing aspect of the story. So that's, you might say it's ironic. But it's a It's, ca- right? it's yeah. counterpuntal to, to what you're seeing. Yeah. It is, for me, honestly, the way that I see the world, to be honest. So it is often my first reaction yes. to a film is to say, OK, what am I not seeing? Right, right. Source music. What is source music? Well, source music is uh, is music that appears in a film f- coming from a source on the screen. So, a uh, radio, uh, record player—that's called source music. In the more academic world, it's called diegetic music because it's coming from the diegesis; it, uh, it issues from the diegesis what? of the story. Yeah, <laughs> but that's definitely one more syllable than you'll hear in Hollywood. <laughs> yes. Uh, So typically in Hollywood, you distinguish the source music from the score, and they're distinguished in terms of the function they serve in story because source music is often chosen by the people on the screen. Someone puts on a record. That's telling you that person's choice, whereas what I write is – first of all, is coming from – where you know no one the knows. The ether. <laughs> yeah, that's right. God. And it's there more to manipulate the audience. It's uh, it might it can sometimes be telling you something about the character, but it's a different type of thing. I, I'm interested when they blur uh, sometimes in films, and I'm going to play the film you
2: composed, a scene from *Miller's Crossing* by Joel Ethan Cohen. So two gangsters show up uh, at the house of the character played by Albert Finney, and he's trying to relax and listening to Danny Boy on his record player. So we see the record on the old-fashioned phonograph. He's chilling in bed. And so this is source music because he's playing the
3: record. That's right, we see the record.
2: They enter. They fire. The Albert Finney gangster kills one, jumps out of his house. now burning house. So, so we're not in his room anymore.
3: Right. And but the music is, is going on. That's correct. When we first heard it, you know, you heard the scratches in the record. It was treated, but once we're out of that room, now the music is full. It's coming from all the speakers in the theater. And it's being treated as score now. A well, mix, really. Scores, yeah. uh, we sometimes say. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, there's a new term of art. About- <laughs> as he walks outside now with his Tommy gun he kind of carries the song with him it's, it's, it's now it's him it's, right. it's Albert Finney he put the record on and he just brings it with him and it tells you something about him it's the song as you, you know hear it's very relaxed the tempo is down although the shooting is going on the music isn't pumping things up because he's very relaxed he's walking calmly down the road with his Tommy gun uh, carrying on this uh, this battle and that's him. It's it's telling you about his his character. We had um, Frank Patterson who's singing. He came in and sang this for us. He really got into it, and we'd say, "Okay, can you hold that note until the car hits the tree?" And then when it explodes, you resolve the note. And he did that. He was he was really into. Following the picture, and um, but yes, that's that's a place where a piece of source has now become a piece of score. But I think for uh, for pretty good reasons, so because it's yeah. about Albert Finney's character, really, yeah. in the end.
2: So you 've spotted a movie with the director you 've written the music, dealt with the sourcing and the scoring you 're not done. Um, what are streamers and punches a, a phrase i 've definitely never heard
3: <laughs> well, it really goes back uh, to the history of how films used to be scored. The conductor would stand in front of an orchestra and a recording studio the orchestras looking at the conductor behind them is a huge screen, and the film is being projected on that screen and the conductor has to conduct the music so it stays in sync with the picture and a lot of times there are specific beats you have to hit I have to be at this bar at this moment I have to be at this bar right. at this moment so the way that was achieved was they would uh, take a crayon and, and draw a line across the, the film going right. from one side to the other and when it the way that it appears on screen is as a line moving from left to right streaming across the, the screen and telling you that when, by the time that line gets to the right side I've got to be at bar 31 and you know and uh, so that's a streamer. Punches um, were a way of giving the conductor some metronome information, basically. It'd be just they'd actually take a punch, like you'd punch paper with, uh-huh. and punch a hole in the oh. film, like where every beat was or maybe where every bar was. So he'd see this white dot, and he would know if he were, had to speed up a little. The conductor would know if he was in time to meet his obligations to the picture.
2: And and do you conduct when you, after you compose your music? I
3: conduct, uh, yeah, all my sessions. Wow. It's, that's the fun part of the I would job. think the most fun. It's the most fun, yeah. And,
2: and, and are you, is it like we've seen in the movies about movies? Is the movie like screening in front of you?
3: Well, it's these days, it's screening in front of me, but on a tiny screen. Right. I'm sorry, they don't really do it that because way anymore. Because it's these days. <laughs> it's these days. So it is a big kick. You know, I... I I spend 95% of my life by myself in a room. Yeah. That's what I do as a composer. But for that, those few days when we're recording, it's... Uh, you it's, put on an ascot and tails. <laughs> exactly. And uh, and, an, and an imperious tone. And <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, that's right.
2: So as you're syncing the, the movie with the music, that can be done very tightly where every bit of action, da-da, and then it can be more freely flowing, that's just a stylistic choice of the director and you? It is. And when music is too synced up, there's a term for that?
3: Well, yes. If <laughs> there is, it's called Mickey Mousing. If the music you know hits as a beat for every visual beat, You know that's called Mickey Mousing. It goes back to uh, those early uh, Disney animations where as the characters bounce up and down and the, the washing machine bounces up and down and the trees bounce up and down in t- time with the music, everything's moving always in sync. And we can even see, as we listen to this, we see Mickey walking.
2: <laughs> That's right, exactly. Are you ever accused of being a Mickey Mousing?
3: <laughs> I don't think I've been accused yeah. of being of Mickey Mousing, no. I, but there are a lot of film styles, types of films that do require that. Right. There are, you know, action films where whenever some something crashes into something else, or you know, of course there's a beat of music there. And I'm happy to say those aren't the types of films I typically work on, right. but... You know, I don't know. There may be some – maybe in the animation world they use the term Mickey Mousing as a as a more affectionate term. But when I hear <laughs> it, it's usually a pejorative, I have to say. Yeah. Oh,
2: Carter Burwell, uh, this is fascinating. And uh, thank you very, very much. Thank you, Carter. That conversation with Carter because it was just the two of us, what we in professional radio broadcasting call a two-way. When there are two – two interviewees. We call it a three-way and even some of us snicker at that. What are the special terms of art that you use when you're applying your trade as a painter of murals or in your special effects studio or your balloon art business? Let us know at studio360.org. And that's it for this week's episode. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Our team here includes... Jocelyn
1: Gonzalez. Andrew Adam
2: Newman. Louis Mitchell. Daniel Guimet. Sam Kim. Skylar Swenson. Tommy Bazarian.
0: Zoe Saunders.
4: Max Gibson. It's all around their poop and pee schedule.
2: And I'm Kurt Anderson. Thanks for listening. PRI. Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360, the film that changed the face of the American action movie. It, it, you got to understand, up until that point, there was never a black hero, okay? I mean, he was giving the finger
0: to the white boys.
2: <laughs> Shaft. That's next time in our American Icon series on Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC.